0: That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay now, from the beginning.
1: Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world.
0: You know, a great litigator I listened to once said, I write my closing statement prior to the case. You know, the case walks in the door, and the very first thing I do is I write the closing statement. And that's true for life. You know, I I don't want to leave the earth without having helped move the needle in some important areas. And so I think getting really clear as early as you can, it's hard to do this. I mean, you know, as as you become an adult, your ideas change. But it's always good to be thinking about what is your closing statement, um, or what's somebody else's closing statement going to be about you? And if you're like me, at least you want to, that closing statement starts with he or she move the, you know, help move the needle.
1: Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is my friend, Mark Zimmelman, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Mark, how are you?
0: Very good. And enjoying retirement. How are you doing?
1: (laughs) Good. Okay, don't give away too much. We're going (laughs) to... (laughs) <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. No, I'm I'm great, um, and uh, and I'm very happy for you. So you know, let me tell uh, the listeners a little bit about you, Mark, and then and then we'll get started. Um, and I'm and I don't go into long bios because they can Google you. Uh, but Mark Simmelman, uh, until recently, was a senior vice president in GC for Kaiser Foundation Health Plan um the nation's largest nonprofit managed care organization um mark attended uc santa cruz uh with where he received a degree in history um he received his um, J.D. from H- uh, UC Hastings, magna cum laude, I might add. Um, and after attending uh, law school, worked for a couple of big law firms, Mc- McCutcheon Doyle and then Oric. Um, he uh, uh, joined Kaiser, I think it was in 1991, and was there for over 30 years Before entering the lovely world of retirement this year, did I miss anything?
0: That was perfect. That was Uh, perfect. You forgot to mention that I'm part of the Merle Vaughn fan club and uh, make a point of mentioning your name at all the conferences I speak at.
1: I know. I I love that. I don't know. I I need you to I need to start uh, finding conferences uh, for you in case you decide you don't want to do it anymore, because I really I like it when uh, I like it when you do
0: that. I'm still doing conferences. I did a conference on Sunday with a whole bunch of GCs and I mentioned your name again.
1: Oh, my goodness. I love it. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, I really appreciate you. Um, And we'll get into why you do that a little bit later uh, in in the podcast. But first, I'd like to start out by by asking um, the folks with whom I speak about their upbringing. Like I want to, you know, kind of give us a, a, a idea of your story, you know, like your beginnings Um, your, to the extent that you're, you're comfortable, your up, upbringing, your parents and kind of what, um, how that affected your journey, um, throughout your
0: career. Okay. So the things that I think are relevant are number one, my father was one of the early, very early, uh, physicians at Kaiser Permanente. He joined Southern California Permanente Medical Group, started up in 1953 as a formal group, Um, and he joined that year and uh, was one of the, uh, they had just opened up the Sunset Hospital, which was the flagship hospital for Kaiser Permanente in Los Angeles, the downtown hospital, and he was one of the uh, first doctors there. Eventually, when they opened up the Panorama City Hospital uh, over in uh, the valley, uh, we then moved over there and he was one of the founding doctors uh, for that hospital. Um, So I was raised in Kaiser Permanente. Uh, It was a radical organization at that time in the sense of that um, the AMA uh, believed that it was a socialist institution and was out to kill it.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. As a a doctor at Kaiser Permanente, you were essentially destroying your career if you ever planned to go back into private practice uh, because the regular medical industry would not deal with you. Um, He was not allowed to become a member of the County Medical Association, which doctors always want to be part of. He was not allowed to be a member of the California Medical Association or the AMA because they uh, believed, again, Kaiser was a... Socialist organization, and they, uh, which it wasn't, um, but you know the idea of doctors on salary, just and group practice—you know, where everyone's responsible for the patients—it was just appalling to them. Even though that actually is the same model you see in universities, um, right. so you know, it, it <laughs> truly it was not radical. But you know, the AMA really was scared of the economics. They were worried that uh, physicians would lose the ability to charge whatever they wanted to, uh, which is true. And, um, and so they, they really went after trying to, they really tried to destroy Kaiser. Um, and it wasn't until 1959 where a report came out, uh, sponsored by the AMA that showed that in fact, the, um, Kaiser and these similar organizations were actually providing as good or better care than the rest of the healthcare system. And they finally had to concede that these were actually just fine institutions. And they, they finally started letting physicians in uh, from Kaiser. My father finally got an invitation to join the County Medical Association, I think in the early 60s, and he declined it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was so pissed off. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I grew up with the founders and I grew up understanding the original mission Which was all about affordability. You know, the idea, it was a very, very fine group of physicians because, again, only the the most courageous were going to join the organization. And they were, um, you know, quite intent on building what was both going to be the highest quality system as well as um, the most affordable. And
1: so you, you grew up with a father who's a doctor, he was at Kaiser. You went to to college and and to study chemistry was that because you wanted to be a do- you thought you wanted to be a doctor? Yeah.
0: yeah, originally I did and then I took William Hitchcock's history course and uh, that that changed what I was interested in. Um, the other point that I'd mention about my background is that I always, you know, it's really funny. I've been doing diversity work forever. Um, I was interested in it long before I got into law. And I always get, you know, I get a certain degree of skepticism because, you know, I, I'm a traditional looking white male and uh, people always wonder if it's sincere. And the point that I make to people is I was born only nine years after the war ended, World War II. Uh, you know, most of my family was wiped out. Uh, you know, they were shot, gassed, uh, wow. you know, they were killed. And, uh, when I, as I was growing up, I was growing up in a traumatized family. My grandparents had lost their brothers, sisters, my grandmother lost her mother. Um, and the trauma was still very, very real. Um, uh, and so I grew up quite clear on the fact that I was part of a minority group that, um, <laughs> some wanted to exterminate. Yeah. Um, and as a, as a consequence, it was very natural for Jews at that time to be deeply involved in civil rights. It's true today, but it's, it was really true then. You know? So when you take a look at one of my favorite photographs is the group of lawyers who brought Brown versus Board of Education. It's a group of black men with Thurgood Marshall in the middle with one tall white guy standing behind the table yeah. and his name is greenberg yeah. <laughs> he eventually became the head of the naacp uh, litigation division after thurgood got on the court um and and that connection was very very deep um so you know that to me was just very natural and i've you know spent my life uh, feeling that you know it's part of my obligation as a, a you know, coming out of that background um, to fight for uh, groups that have been, you know, historically discriminated against. And obviously, African Americans being the most uh, within the United States. So I also wanted to give that background.
1: Why? I, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad you talked about that because I think that um, people do, you know, they're people too readily chastised straight white men, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, generalizations are not good. And, and that is a stereotype that that is what that's what this podcast is about. This podcast is about, you know, stereotypes, everybody is subjected to them. Um, and the people who are, are uh, aware of them and able to overcome them is what I like to talk about and just make you know bring it to the forefront to, to folks that everybody um, is subjected. So you just talked about that, you know the fact that you know nobody would expect you to be as as zealous about diversity and equity and inclusion as you are just by looking at you because they don't know that background story. Right. So, you uh, you went to law school. You worked at some big firms. You were a, um, a environmental litigator, I believe.
0: Right. I, I came out of I actually came out of school. I was interested in two things. One was civil rights, and the other was environmental. And I first went to work for a big uh, or a Carrington and. Right. Uh, I worked there for two years and realized I was making so much money that I would never be able to go into a civil rights practice if I kept going this direction. So I literally quit one day. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, I, have, I did have a job set up. I had already talked to Sandy Rosen who ran the only remaining private civil rights firm in in San Francisco. Uh, and he was going to pay me the magnificent rate of 27,000 a year. Um, so I took a big cut to go over there. Um, but you know, I felt like I really had to do that practice and see if it worked. Um, and so I quit OREC, uh, on very good terms. Um, they were okay. all a little surprise that I left and I went over to, uh, Sandy's office and had a blast. I did, I was in federal court constantly, um, working on big civil rights cases. Um,
1: I know that, Mark. I yeah. Really
0: that. Yeah. And, uh, just had a great time, got much more litigation experience over there because, of course, you know, in a small office like that, I, as a young associate, got thrown right into federal court dealing with, you know, one of the one of the judges who was known about known for eating lawyers, you know, <laughs> um, so, uh, and just had a great time. But the problem was, is that the Supreme Court at that stage was shutting down the fee petitions. And a firm like that survived on fee petitions. And so it became very clear that Sandy was not going to be able to maintain a pure civil rights practice. It would have to become much more of a standard business firm with a civil rights practice on the side. And I didn't want to do that. Um, so I eventually, uh, after a year of litigation, um, I called up one of the partners from OREC had moved over to McCutcheon and in the environmental area and asked if, uh, they could take me in and he, they said they didn't have any jobs, but they went and, he went and talked to the rest of the team and they decided to bring me in. So I ended up at McCutcheon under David Andrews, um, you know, the first, uh, African American, managing partner of a major firm in the United States. And nice. I ended up working for him, uh, which was, again, just great fun. Uh, David being just a wonderful, wonderful human being and uh, unfortunately died way too young. Um, and I was at McCutcheon until uh, they asked me to become a part. They, they told me the partnership would be conditioned on me moving to San Jose and starting the practice there with a group of lawyers and my wife at the time uh, was a partner in a small firm up in San Francisco and said she divorced me if I did that. So <laughs> I called up my favorite client, Kaiser, and said, it'll be a lot cheaper for you to hire me um, if, uh, than to uh, keep paying me as an outside lawyer. And the economics uh, made sense to them. And in literally one week, I was at Kaiser.
1: Wow, you know this is a great, um, great story for folks to to who don't realize, you know, h- how you can be uh, instrumental in you know your own uh, career, right? Like just pick up the phone and call people. I, I tell people that all the time. You know, because you know, when they really want to do something, it's like, "Look, I can help you as a recruiter, and I will will try to help you as a recruiter, but you have to participate in this also." And I think that was a great um, a great example.
0: Well, um, the truth the truth, Merle, is that I never got a job in law that I applied to, with the exception of the general counsel job every other job didn't exist every other job was created for me it was a matter of i got the job at orc in a really bad job market and so i just decided i'll go out and do informational interviewing and so you know i called up a whole bunch of hastings grads at uh, various law firms and i was at orc and we just had a great conversation and after the conversation was done they decided they'd create a position for me and Sandy Rosen just created a position for me because I called him up and said, I want to do civil rights. <laughs> I'm willing to take a big haircut uh, financially to do it. Um, and so all those jobs that I had leading up to the general counsel job were there. Was, there was no job. It was just a matter of creating it through conversation.
1: Wow. Do you think that happens
0: today? How often? Do you yes, think- absolutely. No question about that.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Um- That's, you know, I'm really glad to hear that. If I ever decide to do anything else, I'll just try to figure, get somebody to create something for me. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So, okay, so you go to Kaiser, you have this interesting connection to Kaiser because your dad was one of the first um, doctors. You grew up, you know, as a Kaiser kid for the most part, Kaiser family. We, you know, everybody knows that you are probably the last true historian um, for Kaiser, which is is really cool. Um, And so you've kind of you know, you kind of go full circle. But at at that time, you, you know, you were. You ended up kind of being a legal generalist, right? In-house as a legal generalist. But then you you become the, you you decide um, that there should be specialists. Is that that something that you decided? Because it seems to be what happened in legal departments. And do you think that that was, you know, is that still, you know, is that a good thing? Or is it necessary?
0: Or, you know, what's the effect? It's necessary. In a large legal department, um, you really have to design it on a large law firm model, meaning that it's full of specialists. Um, otherwise, you're just not getting the efficiencies. Uh, you know, healthcare has become highly specialized, just like medicine has. And uh, it, it just generalists just simply can't be as efficient. So they end up having to, if they're in house, they then have to, if you have a department that's so small that it has to be all generalists, then you're going to do a lot of outside counsel hiring and specialists at God knows what they're charging nowadays, $800, $900 an hour. It's just too expensive. So if you've got the size on the inside to bring in the specialists, that's what you really have to do. And what struck me when I joined Kaiser was that the department was there were, there were 70 lawyers or 75 lawyers throughout the organization when I joined, but they didn't all report to the general counsel. Only 20 of them, I think, uh, reported to the general counsel. The rest were located in the regions. Uh, mm-hmm. Kaiser was a sort of a loose association of, of regional health plans back in those days, uh, or regional health systems, I should say. And and, and so each of those departments were so small that they all had to be generalists and they all reported up to their respective regional council and regional presidents rather than up to the general council and so i went to the general council and i said this doesn't make any sense um, you, you've got i gave you the example of real estate you've got um, eight different regions doing real estate deals the lawyers handling those have no background in real estate. (laughs) There's only one guy who's got a background, but he's only serving Southern California. So what we ended up, what I ended up suggesting was why don't you nationalize this department, make it a single department nationally. Then you can switch over to experts and then you'll have one real estate guy whose background is all in real estate and he can serve the entire country, do the deals, you know, for the entire system. And, You know, so we took that to the CEO and he liked the idea uh, and he put together a charter that, frankly, I wrote that because politically that was very hard. Everybody likes to have their team of lawyers. So, yeah, we were not going to get that done ourselves. It had to be the CEO basically directing the regional presidents that we're going to nationalize the legal department and you're going to lose your little team. And so he wrote a charter and, or I wrote the charter, he issued it and we converted to a national department. We were, that was a point in history where Kaiser was moving from as it had to, um, moving from again, a fairly, uh, really an entirely decentralized system where each region was very much autonomous, moving to become a national company. And this was something happening in healthcare. Healthcare was very late to the uh, concept of, of shared service type organizations, you know, national systems, that everything that can be made more efficient uh, through centralization would be centralized. That, that was something that healthcare came to very late. Uh, and we were the first department to lead the way on that within Kaiser, and then many departments came after us, and now the company is pretty much a full shared service operation.
1: Got it. So, so okay, so you have specialists in the legal department, but almost everybody who, not everybody, but most people who join in-house, uh, go in-house, ultimately think that they want to be a GC. They want to be the general counsel, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and to be a general counsel, you know, do you need to be a generalist? And if you do need to be a generalist, how does that, you know, the, this now specialty model affect uh, uh, people being ready, GC. Yeah,
0: ready. It's, it's a serious problem. You know, I I started off in environmental law and environmental law was very new when I joined. And those of us in that field did everything. Um, we did the litigation. We did the business deals. We uh, I actually wrote a lot of regulations because at that time there was, you know, the regulations of in the environmental area were very new. And so actually the city of San Francisco came to McCutcheon and said, could you help us out on a volunteer basis to write our hazardous waste regulations? And I'm the one who did it. So, you know, we were doing everything and, and that was a wonderful background. Uh, for eventually becoming a GC but in the modern world of specialization that was unique you know that's that just doesn't happen anymore and so it became a real problem for succession planning i had to figure right. out a way to take these specialists i had hired and give them you know the full background and so what i did because i you know i knew i was going to retire eventually and so i began succession planning pretty early and what i ended up doing was moving lawyers around intentionally to different areas of practice. Uh, And so I took, for instance, the person who headed up the assistant general counsel who headed up the, um, the regulatory practice. I had her take over the business practice for a period of a couple years so that she would learn that part. And, You know, very awkward, uh, but it worked. You know, everybody understood what I was doing, and uh, the lawyers in the business section were really cooperative in helping train her. And, uh, you know, you just had to do things that were quite artificial like that in order to prepare successors.
1: Well, and I I think that that's important because you know, as you go up and higher and higher in a, in a organization, there become fewer and fewer opportunities, right? So there, there's only, you know, there may be, you know, 10 VP positions there may, but there's only one GC, right? Right. There's no guarantee that anybody that you prepared is going to actually get, get that, that position. Um, But at least, that person will have been prepared should they decide that, you know, there's an opportunity somewhere else. Right.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's, um, it just means that succession planning has to be highly intentional. You've got to start your succession planning, uh, years ahead of time, you know, six, seven years ahead of time. And you have to pick a few people who you think, um, could do the job well. And then you very consciously need to develop the skill set. And again, that takes, you know, some degree of artificialness, you know, moving people into, into places where they just don't have the background. Um, I think that's really the best way to, to prepare successors nowadays.
1: So let's talk about outside counsel. Um, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that the fees you said eight nine hundred dollars. Actually, depending on the firm, it could be you know a thousand fifteen hundred, um, and depending on the matter. But you know, what role? You know, what's the role of outside counsel in you know, uh, in the in organizations like Kaiser? What what role do the fees um, play? And then we'll talk about diversity.
0: Okay. Um, well, I, you know, if you go to a, a, council, a meeting of general counsel, um, inevitably there'll be a discussion about how outrageous and impossible the, um, uh, the outside council uh, rack rates are nowadays. Um, And everyone is working on trying to figure out how to get uh, the cost of outside counsel down. I mean, the fact is you still got to use outside counsel, uh, usually for litigation. But also, um, you know, there are some highly specialized areas where you can't afford to have them in-house. And so you have to go to the outside and also big deals. You know, you're just not staffed up to do a merger and acquisition usually. Right. So, you know, you're but but the costs are, are prohibitive and. And the the healthcare field is a particularly challenging one because healthcare is too expensive. The government is now the major payer in the United States. The federal government uh, pays for most, uh, you know, if you take the total cost of healthcare, the federal government's paying for most of it. And the difficulty is is that the federal government can't afford, just literally cannot afford to continue having... um, healthcare rates escalate at five, 6% a year. And so CMS that handles Medicare and Medicaid uh, has made it clear that it's going to keep the rate of the amount it's willing to pay per capita per person is going to be lower than the rate of inflation, the rate of medical inflation. And that's going to be true for the next 10 or 20, who knows how long, years. And so we're in a declining per capita market and we are going to be for a very, very long time. And that means that our partners, the people who supply all of the goods and services and the rest are going to have to come into that market as well. They're going to have to come into that pricing structure as well if they're going to be our partners. And this is hard. You know, the law firms all want their five to 10% increases each, each year. And you know, the GCs are all really clear on the fact that you want to partner with us. You got to live in the world we live in. <laughs> so you got to figure out how to uh, share, you know, the, the increase we get, and that's not going to be five,
1: 6%. But so, but hasn't that happened before in other practice areas? For example, um, the one I, I, I uh, remember, at least in my legal career at having to first was kind of the, the, the public, uh, arena of bonds, and you know that there, you know there used to be big firms that did um, did you know uh, public bonds and stuff like that, public finance, uh, right? And then and then they decided they they just got out of it, and and then even with labor and employment, you know, a lot of big firms just got out of labor employment. Do you see that potentially happening for healthcare?
0: It's um, it's possible, you know, employment was easy to split off uh, because it could be taken up by smaller firms with just one partner. Um, You know, you bring in somebody who really knows employment law backwards and forwards and can litigate and suddenly you've got an employment law practice. The problem with healthcare is that it takes a cluster of lawyers. You've got to have somebody who understands Medicaid and Medicare, and you've got to have people who get the state regulations, and the corporate side is incredibly complicated because of all the licensing issues. And so it takes, I don't know what the number is, but it takes probably a group of four or five people, and that's very hard for the small firms to do. Um, that's, That's a big investment. So we haven't seen that happen in healthcare, the way you might expect from the economics. Um, it, it, it I hope it does. I, I would like to, that was something that when I was GC, I was trying to foster, I was talking to various small firms about, you know, let's figure out a way where we can help finance you over a period of years in exchange, we get lower rates and here's the kind of people you need to bring in. Right. Um, but I never was able to swing it. Um, So, yes, I mean, employment law just became small firm practice. Um, And, you know, that's the way it should be. Uh, I I don't understand the big firm model anymore. You know, the big firms are so wedded to their uh, high profit per partner model and their heavy staffing model that they're willing to turn away whole areas of business in order to keep that model. And right. it strikes me as very odd. you know most companies in the United States do not turn away gigantic books of business. Um, you see it in the malpractice area where you know the malpractice area of business is all small firms. I mean literally a hundred percent. and but it's worth a fortune. I mean you know malpractice is a big business in the United States and uh, one that the healthcare industry hates. Right. and you know, it's estimated around 2% of uh, healthcare costs. And I'm not sure about that estimate, by the way. It's just a, a number I've heard. Um, but it's a gigantic number. And the big firms have simply decided, well, it doesn't fit our model, so we won't do it. <laughs> Who turns away hundreds of millions of dollars of business? You know, they, they ought to be setting up, the big firms should set up subsidiaries that run on a lower cost model and can do that work. But, uh, you know. I don't get it. If I'm ever, if I ever decide to, you know, go back part time to a firm, um, that'll be one of the very first questions I ask, which is why aren't we taking, a, you know, why aren't we setting up subsidiaries and jumping in just the way that, say, uh, you know, the big airlines have set up these lower cost subs to compete with Southwest.
1: Well, it could be it could have. So I've been thinking a lot about like ego lately, Um, and and it could have a a lot to do with ego, you know, like, you know, this idea that, you know, it's not it because it's uh, there's so much of it that it's not at it's not as sophisticated, or you know, it's it's volume, um, and you know, it could be that you know big firms are are competing for the kind of this ego-driven work, you know, to show that they're the most sophisticated. Um,
0: or yeah, know, I- yeah. Well, I I do think I, I do think you're right. I mean, law firms are run usually by lawyers who are not trained business people. And right. so they're operating on the basis of their own feelings rather than business principles. And so, yeah, ego and other emotional things get into it. No question about that. Still, you know, we are starting to see big law firms hire real business people, you know, mm-hmm. folks who are not, yes. not JDs and to help run their, them from a financial perspective. And so I, I, I still remain a bit surprised that they're not jumping in because there's a lot of business there that they've literally just given up. Um, I, you know, I once made, I once made an offer to, I I had been thinking this way for a very long time. And so for a while I was hunting down East coast firms that had healthcare practices that had not opened up on the West coast. And I went to a few of them and made them offers where I said, Look, you set up a West Coast office in Oakland and back in those days at, at two to three dollars a square foot um, instead of you know what was twenty dollars a square foot off in San Francisco, and you bring over healthcare partners to that practice who will work with me at rates that are thirty to forty percent below your normal rates, and what I will do is guarantee you the business so those partners are not going to need to hunt for business i will guarantee the business and i'll guarantee it for a period of years so instead of your partners going out and hunting for business 30% of their time they're just going to be billing but in return i get the low rates and the expertise and you folks get an office on the west coast that has a guaranteed line of business i th- i couldn't believe they all turned it down and i i quite you know i know that one of the firms actually had a firm-wide partner meeting to discuss doing this. Mm-hmm. And they ended up deciding not to do it for the reason that their partners couldn't figure out how they would allocate the dollars at the end of the year. Because you would have these partners in the firm that were earning money on a different basis and you couldn't score them by the same algorithm.
1: Well, so, you know, that that is a, a pretty good segue to, to talking about you know, diversity. And, and the reason I say that is because you've always as long as I've known you, which has been thankfully, a, a long time since about 2008, or so, you've always thought outside of the box, you've always been and, and I think that's why we get along so well is because, you know, we are both always thinking, how can something be different? And what can we do differently? Um, and so but I think that that's hard for lawyers. I think that you know most lawyers. We're both lawyers, but it's it's hard for most lawyers to think like that, think about doing something novel or differently, and and standing up for it. But you've done that, particularly with respect for to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, um, in 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 Kaiser, and and you've talked about this to other. Of GCs you know why do you think you're able to do that and do it successfully
0: well i've got i've got the trend of the future on my side <laughs> <laughs> the the demographics in the country are you know are immutable they are <clears throat> we are going i think california already is a majority minority right And the rest of the country is moving that way. So, you know, this is inevitable. Consumer companies that sell to consumers are selling to a diverse consumer group. And in fact, majority soon, diverse consumer group. And so in order to be able to succeed, they're going to have to be diverse internally, um, you know, people like to see people who look like themselves. And so if you're going to be successful as a consumer business, you got to look like your consumers, which means that your workforce is going to be that way. And the workforce is not going to be that way unless they can look up the chain and see that the executives are that way. Uh, and, and so in the long run, you know, time is on our side, right? I, I think of us not as... Um, <laughs> I, I, we're, we're going to win. It's just a matter of, you know, maybe we're pushing to win a little bit earlier. Um, so I think that from a business perspective, the, the case is just absolutely compelling. And it's proven out by various studies that show that diverse companies tend to do better in the United States. Um, and there's, you know, there's a sort of an obvious logic to that. But there's also obviously a moral logic to it, um, which we, we talked about earlier where that comes from. And I I have come to believe that you get ultimately better lawyers. You get a better legal department when it's diverse and inclusive. It can't be just diverse. You actually have to have the, the inclusiveness, meaning that right. you have to have the hard discussions. Um, and I read an article in the... Uh, Harvard Business Review, I think it was a 2017 article on why diversity in legal departments, but also in any company, when accompanied with inclusion, creates a better business. And the reason is, is because of the discomfort. It's actually, you know, diversity makes people uncomfortable. They're dealing with people who don't look like themselves. And if you're willing to bring that to the front, in other words, you're willing to talk about it, then what happens is you get a group of people who have to face their own unconscious bias. And that means they're, they're having to look at themselves and become, if you will, more conscious people. And it also means that you take a, peop- a group of people who don't talk about the obvious, the elephant on the table, which in America is race. And they're suddenly talking about it if you structure those conversations and make sure they happen. This is the job of leadership to make sure those conversations happen in a structured way. And when you do that, you suddenly get a group of people, and this is particularly important for lawyers, who can rationally, calmly talk about the most difficult issue in the country. Well, when you can do that, if you can get a group of lawyers who can talk about race, you got a group of lawyers who can talk about anything. Right. (laughs) Right. Right? And what do you look for in lawyers? You look for, and what do you want out of a legal department? You want a group of people who can rationally, calmly talk to anyone about the most difficult subjects. Well, what better training ground than to internally become diverse and then really look at what feelings that raises and what does you know what does that mean in terms of our unconscious beliefs and how we need to surface them and if you will mold them, change them. Um, and so I, I think frankly you just get a better group of lawyers as lawyers and frankly right. as people you know i like i like i really love what we did with our department we had tons of conversations really difficult ones you know the kind of conversations where for, before they happened i had people come in my office and say you know mark you're going to get a suit you know you're you're <laughs> getting into areas that are really sensitive and my feeling was all right <laughs> I don't think we'll get sued. I think we're going to do this the right way. And in any case, it's worth taking the risk. And so we did. And, you know, frankly, I wasn't the one who led the conversations. Usually they're usually led by really wonderful, wonderful lawyers in my team like Tamara. Um, And, uh, you know, the conversations happened. There were no lawsuits. And I really feel people grew and became better human beings as well as better lawyers.
1: And I, and I applaud you for that. And, and I was fortunate to kind of be, you know, play some role in that over the years. And, and, and we had a lot of fun. Fun.
0: Well, you, uh, you played a huge role. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, the, the concept of having, it, it, people don't know the background. So it's worth, I think, spending a minute on that. You know, I, I worked with a lot of healthcare recruiters um, prior to meeting you and they were all white and they kept telling me there are, there's you know they go out doing a search and they come back with all white candidates and they tell me there, there are no minority candidates and i just i know that's not true so i just kept forcing them to go back and i just couldn't get any cooperation so i finally decided all right i'm going to go find a minority recruiter and it may be not i couldn't find any who specialized in healthcare, but I figured I'd train them. So I went out and found three minority-owned companies, uh, headhunter companies for lawyers. You were one of them. And I tested all three of them. You were the best. And so we literally steered all our business to you. And I got a lot of resistance for steering everything your way, particularly because you weren't in the healthcare field at the time, Um, but you know, I ran it, ran the practice. So I, I won. And I, (laughs) you know, we ended up with you becoming a real expert in our field. And ultimately we ran all searches through you, even the in-house searches. Uh, I mean, the searches where we believed we'd end up with an in-house person. Um, because to do true diversity hiring, you got to look all around because you don't know what you're missing. So, and, and the upshot of it was that, you really were responsible for um, diversifying our department and uh, making it what it is today um, so you get a gigantic amount of credit for where we ended up.
1: well thank you I wasn't I wasn't um, angling for that but I appreciate it <laughs> um, but but I guess you know what I wanted to to um, to talk about, is a little bit let's, you know, get out of our business a little bit and kind of compare that to what's happening in the world right now. And, and you make good points. You know, the California's majority minority. The the country is is going that direction. You know, and and I think that that, you know, I wonder if that's stoking so much fear, you know, because we do really seem to be going backwards, at least in my my view. Uh, we're going backwards and and, and folks are trying to, to take away all these rights and turn back the clock and undo everything that's been done. And, and you know, you, the fact that, you know, you say that, you know, it makes diversity makes companies better and people better, but people are, it seems to be so hard fought right now. I mean, do you have an opinion on that?
0: Yeah. Which you know, being an oldest you know student of history, um, you always get resistance uh, to any kind of progressive change, and in particular where people have what I believe is an irrational fear of losing their their uh, enhanced place in society, their um, their privilege, if you will, um, they they fight and. But that you know that that's that's happened throughout American history and probably throughout world history, um, and it's a uh, you know I, I think that one both has to have a certain degree of compassion for the people who feel like they're losing something, but also at the same time, um, <laughs> you know, history does go in one direction. Uh, it. it, it you know, I, I view history as over thousands of years of civilization as being a process of where the weak become the leadership. Um,
1: Interesting.
0: and it goes up and down, you know, in the short term, there's wins and losses, but over the course of history as a whole, you know, it, there's no question that, you know, a, a, if you look at a few thousand years ago at the Roman empire or any of the uh, great empires of the time, you know, male dominated, dominated in particular by the males who are the most physical and capable at war. Um, You got to remember that the early uh, Kings of England were not trained in letters. They were trained in warfare. Um, And they depended on their, uh, you know, the people who worked for them to be the ones who did the writing and thinking and, Policy making and the rest of it, uh, they were expected to be warriors. Um, and, you know, women now, um, <laughs> you, you know, women have uh, the vote. They've got uh, a huge impact in, in, in politics and business. And uh, leadership nowadays has to be, you know, the expectation is to be very, very well educated. It's, I think everyone recognizes that the nerds have taken over the business world. <laughs> I think there's a famous quote attributed to, even if it didn't really come from him, uh, to uh, Bill Gates on that point. And, you you know, it it is a, uh, I I do think that history does have a direction. Um, And it gives me confidence that, you know, if again, we approach it from the standpoint of we are going to win this. Um, the world is going to become more diverse, inclusive, and educated, and and forward-thinking. Um, and it's a matter of getting there in the right way, getting there hopefully as peacefully as possible. Uh, you know, I, I I think that that's kind of the attitude that I try to approach these things with.
1: Interesting. So so there there's setbacks. There's always going to be setbacks, but it's always going to go forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah
1: let's talk about something a little bit more, uh, fun. I know that you are a huge classical music fan. Um, and can you tell me where that comes from and, and, you know, like what, what's your favorite and talk to me about classical music, Mark.
0: Oh, I don't know as much about it as I'd like to, uh, never have had the time to really study it, but my father was truly a classical music buff and, had a massive record collection that I now have. And uh, so I was raised, you know, it was always in the background as I was being raised. And I didn't appreciate it till high school. Um, But in high school, I began listening to Beethoven and just fell in love with uh, the complexity of the work. And as I get older, um, you know, it's really quite amazing to listen, for instance, to Beethoven's uh, The Opus, 130 series of um, quartets uh, because he was very old when he produced those. And I don't think you can understand them when you're young. Um, they, They involve a set of complex emotions that you have to have lived life with all of its great pains and struggles and the rest of it to really understand. And I found them when I was young to be very dissonant and very hard to get into and now I listen to them, and it's I, I'm, I, I can listen to them again and again and again because I'm just so struck by how meaningful all of the different emotions that are conveyed by that music contain. Um, so, you know, classical music contains, it's not like popular music, which I love also, by the way. I really do love popular music too. Um, but popular music's always based around one theme. You know, there's uh, every song has one theme that it Uh it, it plays. Classical music is deeply complicated in the sense of that it it covers a whole range of emotions and you can sit through a symphony. And nowadays I'm more into the quartets Um, and you can, you know, you just go through an entire life of emotions through a complex piece. I don't know if that. Is I don't know if that makes any sense to somebody who doesn't listen to classical music. Right? I don't know if you do or not. You, well, you yeah, I I
1: I love classical music. I love all music. Uh, my father was a jazz musician. And oh,
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, so he played he played the uh, the bass both upright. I, mean, I have I restored his upright basses in my living room. But he played the, the bass, the Fender. I have his Fender. On. Oh,
0: my goodness.
1: Yeah. Um, How old is
0: that Fender? <laughs> it's,
1: it's older than me, Mark. It's older than Whoa, you. Whoa, um,
0: what a classic.
1: Yeah, and so I, I really have an affinity for, for what I call the bottom, you know, the the, the bass. Yeah. It just uh-huh. about everything. I'm, I'm not really musical in that I don't play – any instruments. It skipped generations. My daughter is a is a phenomenal musician and, and has perfect pitch and sings and, and all that. Um but I I did grow up with a lot of music. He had a Hammond organ, which I can't believe I, wow. Stole, stole. Wow. I sold it, but I didn't have any place to put it. But he was he was born in nineteen twenty one. He in Oklahoma he was self-taught. He you know sent away from music, taught himself how to read music. Um and and was a I have his saxophone. I have his clarinet. Um, and you know those are some great stories of you know uh, he he went to Tuskegee, learned how to fly planes, and the the Air Force wouldn't take him into the Air Force because they said words, don't fly, uh, and um, so he ended up in the Navy and and in the Navy band. So I probably am only here because he, he got <laughs> music <laughs> um, and avoided, you know, combat because he was a really good musician. But so I say all that, that that to say that I do. Uh, and my daughter was classically trained. Um, I have her, her grand piano in my living room that I don't know how to play. Uh, and, um, so I do appreciate all music and I do understand what you're saying about music. And I, and I find a lot of solace, um, in music and, and dance. I was classically trained, uh, in ballet.
0: Wow. Yes. That's that's fantastic. Um, you know, jazz is very much the same. You know, you, you go off into, uh, you know, take one of Miles's long half, you know, taking up half of the LP jazz pieces. And it's the same thing of taking you through a lifetime of emotions and uh, remarkably deep.
1: Yeah. So, so speaking of, of thinking outside of the box and differently, and we're coming to the end of, of our, our time here, which is makes me very sad. But when, when we were working together, you started a, 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 a practice of, Taking candidates for a walk around, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll I'll never forget when when I went up to meet you the the first time in person. Um, you said, you know, do you have? another pair of shoes. And I was like, well, actually, I do because I, you know, traveled up here. And he said, put them on. We're going to have this meeting walking around the lake, which I was like, oh, God, what what is this going to do? It was wonderful. It was therapeutic. But how did you start that? Why? And talk to me about your walks.
0: Yeah, um, I, I really believe that people should learn this. It's a far better way to have one on one meetings you know, every meeting where you sit across a table, just the process of sitting across the table has a formality to it that creates a barrier. And the second thing is that when you're sitting in chairs, you know, you know, meetings halfway through everybody, the blood sugar drops and everybody starts to fall asleep <laughs> somewhere towards the last 10 minutes. We realize that, Oh, we got to get this agenda done. And so you wake up again and you try to get through the rest of the meeting. And, when you walk around the lake, you don't have the drop in blood sugar because you're walking. So, you know, the, the, everything keeps flowing. And the second thing is that you're walking side by side and yes. you've got the environment around you. And so it breaks down the barriers. And so I've just, I don't know when I clued into this, but a very long time ago, uh, probably when I got into management back at the end of the nineties, um, I just began doing one-on-one conversations, doing them as a walk around the lake. Um, and, and then I realized that interviews go so much better because you, you get rid of that formality and you start to really learn about who the person is. And people just get more relaxed and they start loosening up and telling you more about themselves. So I made a policy of doing a sit-down interview for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes with each candidate to get the formalities out of the way and then go take a walk around the lake afterwards. Um, and you know, both it's good. Yeah, every pan- candidate's ready for a one hour discussion where they're going to, you know, stick with their, uh, pre-planned agenda. But you know, that second hour they're not ready for and particularly walking. And so you really do learn more about the person. Uh, so I just built that into my practice. My, my difficulty was that as I got older, uh, you know, my stamina started to go down a little bit. And I found that, you know, a lot of these young candidates coming in, young, you know, being yeah. in their 30s, uh, a lot of them were runners and things. And so we'd go launch around the lake and suddenly they're walking, you know, at four miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 I, and I damned if I'm going to ever say to somebody I'm walking with, you know, slow down. So, right, right. You know, I'd be dying by the end of some of these walks. <laughs> that but, is hilarious. Yeah, but um, yeah, that that strategy for uh, you know for interviewing only works till a certain age. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I do think that you know, and again, this podcast is about not only stereotypes but authenticity and. There are so there are so many things about you that are just so authentic and and I, and one of the things that I really have already always appreciated about you is that you re, you remain authentic. You know, you, you come up with ideas, you do things differently, you you know, you stick to your guns and 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 authentic. I mean how have you managed to do that? And do you suggest, you know, how do you suggest that people, that younger people, you know, slow down y'all, but um, how do, how do you suggest that they, they do that in their careers?
0: Well, I'm very goal oriented. I mean, you know, I'm very clear on the fact that you have a limited amount of time on earth and, you know, and it's important to You know, a great litigator I listened to once said, I write my closing statement prior to the case. You know, the case walks in the door and the very first thing I do is I write the closing statement. And that's true for life. You know, I, I don't want to leave the earth without having helped move the needle in some important areas. And so, I think getting really clear as early as you can—it's hard to do this. I mean, you know, as as you become an adult, you your ideas change, but it's always good to be thinking about what is your closing statement, um, or what somebody else's closing statement going to be about you. And if you're like me, at least you want to that closing statement starts with he or she move the you know help move the needle. And so, knowing where you want to help move the needle is really crucial and then staying very, very focused on those goals. Lawyers are very process oriented. You know, that's our job is to make sure that whatever the clients are trying to do that is done the right way. Um, I think it's very important that we realize that as very bright, well-educated people who tend to be fairly knowledgeable around politics and economics and, you know, just generally they read a lot that we also should also be clear on what our values are and what what we want to accomplish in terms of society uh and always keep those things in mind um and so i just think it's goal-oriented you know diversity is a really good point here you know so many people say lawyers, you know, particularly managing partners and law firms say, geez, it's just so difficult. I just have so much trouble, you know, finding the right people and then main keeping them in the firm and, you know, on and on and on. And, and my, how do you do all that? My point is really simple, which is, look, if you're serious about making the change, just set the end goal. You know, yeah. if, if your end goal is to have your partnership within five years be 20 percent minority and 40% women, do it. Do <laughs> it. Do it. And do it. If you're in charge, you can do it. And it's right. just a matter of doing everything you have to do to accomplish it. And, you know, frankly, I threw a lot of things at the wall as a GC and, and even prior to being a GC to try to diversify and and also to just make the department better and some worked and some didn't and fine that's that's life you know you 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 know don't be scared try a lot of stuff (laughs) don't be scared about admitting something failed and move on come up with more things but if you're clear enough about what you're trying to accomplish and you're determined to accomplish it and you're willing to just experiment a lot and empower others to experiment. That, by the way, is the single biggest secret. The best thing I ever did was set up a diversity committee, put a really capable person in charge, you know, Tamara, and and say, here, I'll provide you the resources. You take it on. Uh, you know, if, if you're just that determined, it'll happen.
1: Yes. That, that, that. Um is perfect and it's a perfect way to end them thank you so much mark for being here to BS with me today um, and thanks to everyone for listening until the next episode remember that everybody is different and different is
0: good hit it that's what i'm talking about wait okay now from the beginning
1: we hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of bs Beyond stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their
0: uniqueness on the world.